Hello and welcome to the next episode of the West Connect podcast, where we help ensure that student athletes are successful on and off the field. I am excited to have an old friend of mine and teammate, my class, Jeff Jorby with me today. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Brian. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, we are class 2004, right? Yeah. Although my memory is not what it used to be. <laughs> yeah. So we played the cross together. Jeff is always one of my favorite guys in the team because uh, he was a bird of a different feather. And I thought that was kind of a lot of fun and in the spirit of Wesleyan in more ways than one, which we will get into in this conversation. Um, maybe, Jeff, you can get us started off. How you found yourself at Wesleyan, especially then, somebody coming from Seattle, you and Define, you know, that was a rarity, frankly. There, there was obviously very much a Northeastern centric school and especially on the lacrosse team itself i mean it was pretty much new england and long island were representatives so how did you find yourself in middletown connecticut yeah it's um it's a good question um i grew up outside the city of seattle in a town called bothell it was about a 45 minute drive for me to get to school um in north seattle and I started playing lacrosse in seventh grade. At the time, there were eight teams in the whole state of Washington. Um, and I don't know that anyone outside of maybe a handful of lacrosse players went to play college lacrosse after high school. The Washington State system just wasn't good at producing college athletes. And so at the time that David and I, my friend David Fine, who is also 2004 and played on the team with you and I, at the time that David and I were applying to college, um, you know, there weren't really that many people who had gone to play even division three lacrosse. He applied early to Wesleyan and met with coach Reba and showed him a videotape uh, of, you know, his game footage uh, of what of which I was a part, you know, I was on the team with David. And so coach Reba asked for my name at the time. Um, and then when I applied to Wesleyan, I think put in a good word for me at the admissions office. So uh, I owe David to a certain extent um, for helping me get in. Um, and I found that as you alluded to the transition from, you know, being in a very small program to going to a place like Wesleyan, I, I was a bit of an odd duck. You know, I had never participated in some of the, you know, lacrosse is a cultural institution in the Northeast. Um, there are all sorts of behaviors and attitudes associated with the sport. And we just didn't have any of that in the state of Washington. So it was a bit of a culture shock for me. I think there's a, there's a pretty funny story of, um, you know, one of our first scrimmages, we were scrimmaging some, you know, division two program. And at the end of the scrimmage, I, I put on a sarong because, you know, at the time I was just, really feeling myself, but like, I, I, I just wasn't that interested, I think at the time in, in being a cross player or like a lax bro, I guess you could say. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciated about Wesleyan was how easy it was to still fully participate in the athletics program. You know, I was starting on the team my freshman year, despite being a goofball. Um, and I always really appreciated that about Wesleyan athletics that during the fall, sure, there were workouts potentially, but you were a student first and foremost. And I think even, you know, during the season, my freshman year, when I was starting, I was in a class called opera and oratorio ensembles, 
which had a performance during one of our away games. So I missed the game. You know, I had to do this performance as part of my credit. And I know that was true for, you know, many of the film majors on the team. That was true for David when he was showing his film that those sorts of things came first, despite us being a, a fairly competitive lacrosse team. Um, so that was, that was something that I always really treasure about my athletic experience at Wesleyan. I don't know if that quite answers your question, um, but that's certainly how I got there. Yeah, absolutely. And then talk a little bit about the academic books you had when you were in school. What was your area of, of, of study, major, all of that? Yeah, so uh, when I got to Wesleyan, I was convinced that I was going to be an astrophysicist. So my, my, I did a lot of advanced math in high school. Uh, and during my freshman year, uh, tested in a multivariable calculus, took intro to astronomy for majors, and just really found that it wasn't maybe the direction I wanted to go after my first year. And so uh, I believe it was in the campus center during some point in the spring of my freshman year, I was sitting around with a bunch of friends and we all sort of made a pact uh, to take introduction to Chinese the next year, which at the time for a, for a freshman college student to stare down the face of um, five days a week courses at nine in the morning for an hour plus, you know, hours in the language lab after that was quite the commitment, but um, uh, we all decided to do it. I took um, intro to Chinese then and finished uh, four years worth of Chinese in three years at Wesleyan, um, was an East Asian studies major, spent a summer and fall abroad in China, in both Beijing and Hangzhou, um, did a lot of traveling at that time. And ultimately that sort of transitioned from a very science and math focus to more of a humanities focus um, in East Asian studies was what led me to my post-college career uh, initially in China. So, so let's get a little bit into that. Obviously, you, you and I had a very successful athletic career at school, a uh, little three champs, three out of four years, no big deal. Um, <laughs> but, and you studied hard. I mean, that was always kind of part of your character. What was that trans transition like after school? Kind of what did that look like? Where'd you go? Sure. Well, it's a funny story because, you know, a lot of I've um, sort of in conversations with previous episodes of the podcast, a lot of the focus has been on networks and networking and the importance of networks. And so uh, when I was graduating, I knew that I wanted to go to China because if I didn't, I would lose my uh, Chinese fairly rapidly. I wanted to go be more immersed in the language. And I knew that I didn't want to take a job teaching English. Um, so I got a job through my mom's hairdresser's sister, who was the sales manager at a newly opened international hotel in Shanghai. Um, I was the only foreign employee, the only English speaking employee in a company of about 250 people. Uh, and I lived at the hotel during my first year in China. So I was in a, you know, a 250 foot uh, square foot hotel room and would take the elevator down to work. Uh, it was a very bizarre experience. The hotel itself was um, was the sort of hotel arm of an iron and steel conglomerate uh, that they had opened in order to kind of wine and dine the, um, the Chinese fire department, 
which determines all the occupancy requirements for uh, for buildings. So I got to meet a lot of um, Shanghainese uh, fire department officials, drank a lot of bad Chinese wine. Um, but ultimately during that time, um, I, you know, was an expat in the city of Shanghai in 2004. And, you know, it was a really incredible time to be in China. Uh, they had joined the WTO three or four years before and had just sort of uh, kicked the wheels rolling on both the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And also Expo was happening in Shanghai in 2010. So there were uh, big things afoot. Uh, in the country, and they were liberalizing some of their um, immigration laws to allow more foreigners to come in and work. Uh, so there were a lot of opportunities for someone with Chinese language skills. At the time, I met a lot of other expats and sort of networked my way into a writing job with a local um, blog, Shanghaiist, which at the time was a, um, an offshoot of the Gothamist website, which was recently bought by WNYC, um, the editor of, of Shanghai, to whom I'm deeply in debt, Dan Washburn, who I think is at the Asia Society now, um, got me, introduced me to the editor of, uh, in editor at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And uh, I got a job writing for the EIU, which uh, kept me in China for another three years. So you know, during that period of time, I was writing about politics. The, the renminbi had just become unpegged from the dollar. So there are a lot of questions about Chinese monetary policy. Uh, got me really interested in economics and political economy. Um, and so, you know, it's funny listening, listening to the podcast and how purposeful it seems many people are with they're networking, they have an idea of what they want to do, they're targeting X, Y, and Z individuals in three sectors, they're using their networks to, you know, have exponential introductions. And for me, it was much more, uh, you know, there's, there's a narrative in which there's purpose there, I'm actively attempting to be a writer, I'm going out and networking, but also, you know, you happen to meet someone and that person happens to know someone else. Uh, and so, you know, there's a question of just being open to new opportunities when they arise and even ones that aren't purposeful in their, you know, in their networking opportunities. Yeah, I can speak to that as well. Um, now I'm a very focused networker as part of my job, but the way that I started the company, my co-founder 10 years ago, very serendipitous meeting of a friend of a friend who I just had lunch with. And ended up being a, my business partner for the last decade. So there's a lot to be said just being open to, <laughs> to some extent, taking uh, what the world gives you and kind of going with the flow. And as you would say, keeping it tight, but staying loose in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's right. That's the, um, con the constant duality. <laughs> um, so maybe talk about, you know, at some point, obviously, you made your way back to the States. What precipitated that move and, and where did you end up landing? Yeah, so I think, you know, professionally, something that a lot of college graduates feel that are credentialed, for lack of a better term, with a bachelor's degree is that there's something of a glass ceiling for folks without, um, you know, secondary degrees. Um, so I certainly felt that at the EIU, um, there was a sense that the, the, sort of the writing that I was doing, which was very much 
uh, going out and reading newswires, fetching whatever was pertinent to our readership, uh, agglomerating that into a newsletter and, and sending it out with a little bit of editorial, that that was basically as high as I could expect to go within that field if I didn't go get some sort of um, you know, master's or PhD. Uh, and so with that in mind, knowing that you know, I wanted to be doing potentially, maybe not knowing that I wanted to be doing something potentially more interesting, but having the sense that if I wanted my life or the trajectory of my career to continue to progress on some sort of, in some sort of upward fashion, that I would need an advanced degree. Uh, and so I came back to the US, I moved back to Seattle, um, and shortly thereafter was on the phone with my a good friend of mine from Wesleyan, uh, who knew you knew as well in 2004, uh, for the cost of 2004, Seth Crockford. He called me and said he was beginning his, um, he was doing post-bac pre-med classes at Harvard Extension, uh, was going back to med school. And so I drove across the country to Boston to live with Seth and take classes at Harvard Extension while I applied to um, master's degree programs in international economics. Um, at the time, I had this idea that I wanted to work in uh, there. In 2008, 2009, there was this emerging field. Um, these economists just recently won the Nobel Prize, Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee, who uh, had a, a new way of thinking about uh, the application of sort of randomized control trials testing to um, economic interventions, particularly in international aid. I was very enamored of this idea that it, um, somehow we could use our sort of technocratic abilities to improve the livelihoods of impoverished countries. And so I kind of fixated on that as something that I wanted to do with my uh, secondary education or post-secondary education, I should say, and then applied to master's degree programs in international economics. Eventually I was accepted at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in DC. Uh, and moved there in 2010 to start my master's degree. Um, at SICE, you know, living in DC, I was, I was never a, a huge fan of Washington, DC, but SICE was a, was a really incredible experience for those who are thinking about doing work in government. I would, I would highly recommend it as a, as a potential place for uh, master's education. Um, I got my degree in quantitative methods and international economics. And following SICE, I took a job at a company called Intermedia, which was a monitoring and evaluation consultant for international aid organizations uh, that were getting money from USA basically to help uh, deliver aid abroad. Uh, I did that for about nine months to a year. I then worked at the World Bank for about 15 months. Um, and I had sort of reached a point where, you know, I had gone to school for two years uh, in this thing that I had convinced myself I wanted to do. I had worked in the field for two and a half years, including the second part, the second half of which I, um, you know, was at this sort of seminal international aid institution at the at the World Bank, um, and I was just feeling like I don't know if unsatisfied is the right word, but certainly as if I wasn't 
gaining a lot of meaning from my employment. Uh, my life didn't feel particularly rich in any sense of the word. Um, I didn't know whether what I was doing was good. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, I guess you could say, you know, I, I sort of hit a low point um, in my professional life anyway, wondering whether, you know, this thing that I'd sort of told myself I was on a trajectory towards since Wesleyan, whether it was kind of all for naught. Yeah, and I had similar emotions. After law school, I worked at the district attorney's office being a prosecutor. It's what I had convinced myself that I wanted to do. I'm not really sure why in retrospect, but just was, it was the end point, right? And then it was kind of like the dog chased the car. Once I got it, I was very busy working heads down, but then moments of, of self-reflection, I realized maybe this isn't what I wanted to do. But that's a scary thought to have because you've spent so much time and energy and, and oftentimes money, resources, working towards that point. And I think that emotion that you're describing is one where when I've had the chance to sit down and talk to older alums, Rob Wilcox is a great example, where they really find that passion and purpose is, is marrying something that they have an extreme emotion about internally with their professional acumen. And Rob's been able to do that. He's achieving a really sublime state of work life right now, but it's not easy. And oftentimes you get caught in that, that trap of, of working because this is what you convince yourself you want to do. And you're making decisions when you're 21, 22, but oftentimes, especially if you're going through an advanced degree program like yourself or a PhD program, which I talked to Bernadette Doikas about this on the show, you're talking about a five to 10 year commitment. And once you get into it, it's very hard to extract yourself. Yeah. And I would, you know, I would say not only is it not easy to find those, um, employment opportunities where it sort of marries your, your passion with the acumen. I would also say it's incredibly rare. And so there's something about, and I don't know if it was just a misunderstanding on my part, which is totally possible. Um, but I was under the impression for a long period of time that somehow your employment should be self-actualizing, that the thing that you do should give you some purpose in your life that you should wake up feeling like, God, I can't wait to start my day. You know, like I took a break last night, but I'm raring to go again this morning. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I ever felt that, to be honest. You know, you, you keep waiting for it to happen, or at least I did up until this point where, you know, I'm in DC, it's, it's 2014, 2015, and I'm sort of feeling like, God, I I'm not excited to wake up and go to work in the morning. Like this is, is not, I feel like what I signed up for. So what happened next? I mean, you had this emotion, there was other things going on personally as well, but what did that next step look like? Yeah, I mean, I think for me um, that it's interesting. One of, the, one of the things that happened is at the time I, I just started reading a lot more. Um, I think that, um, when you are a young professional, it's very easy to sort of subsume yourself uh, into your professional life. Um, after SICE, uh, and as I was working, you know, in, in these international aid institutions, I also spent time moonlighting as a bartender. 
Um, and I spent a lot of time just reading um, a lot of novels. And one in particular that stands out to me, I read To the Lighthouse for the first time. I, I had never read Virginia Woolf when I was younger, but um, it, it became quickly became one of my favorite books. And, and the book is often seen as, as this tragedy um, where the, you know, the main character, Mrs. Ramsey, is uh, you know, this intelligent, uh, vibrant figure who subsumes herself to the interests of her household. And sort of her intellect is buried under the weight of responsibility for maintaining all these things. But at the time when I was reading it, I, I felt like Mrs. Ramsey was very heroic. Um, you know, here was a person who was doing all of the quiet things necessary to ensure that her husband and her friends and her children could live the lives that they wanted to live and find deep meaning in, in what they were doing uh, without necessarily needing recognition herself. Um, and that's always really stuck with me. And I think, you know, I read, I read the book the first time, I, I think in 2013 or so. And I just thought to myself, that to me seems very meaningful. Like, I don't need to do something where my name is on a paper somewhere or, you know, I'm now a senior vice president as opposed to just a vice president at some company. And that title change means a lot to me. And I talk about it at dinner parties. You know, I want to be surrounded by people I love and have deep, meaningful connections with them and allow and do the things necessary to help them lead meaningful lives as well. Um, and so I had been... Uh, dating a woman from Wesleyan, actually, as well, uh, class of 2007, Kim Baskin, off and on for basically since I got back from China. And I just decided, look, I'm not happy doing what I'm doing. Um, but I know that I'm happy with her. Uh, so I packed my bags. Uh, my contract at the, at the World Bank was up. Uh, I worked at the bar for like another two months. And I put everything in the car and I drove to New York. Um, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to be with her. Um, and so that really, like that recognition that maybe my professional life would never be self-actualizing, but that my personal life could be, uh, that my relationship could be the deep source of meaning in my life was really what sort of changed for me and, and led me to where I am today, which is I'm a, you know, I'm a stay-at-home dad. I worked for about three years at, in New York City, um, doing uh, using my sort of quantitative background for more local nonprofits. I worked at Brooklyn Defender Services with another Wesleyan grad, uh, Nick Malinowski, uh, 2004, and uh, Emma Alpert, 2004. Um, I then worked at a private school that was, uh, or a charter school that was focused on uh, youth that were affected by the carceral system and how that negatively impacted their credits and subsequently their engagement with public schools. Um, but, you know, then we had a kid and I just decided, look, the thing that I want to do is make sure that, you know, she becomes the best person she can possibly be. Uh, and the same being true for, for, we have one on the way in March uh, for, you know, our, the boy that we're expecting and any future kids we have and to be a good partner to my wife. Um, to do the things necessary at home so that she can do what she loves to do, which is work. Um, and so in that way, I've found a very ideal situation, um, having found a partner who really 
who really likes working, who feels that her job is very important. Um, and so in that way, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, my, my personal networking has, um, has really come to fruition in my life. And there, there's a couple of comments that I want to unpack a little bit before we move on. I, th I think one of the themes that you touched on that we talked about in the pre-call is this almost endemic issue amongst, you know, alpha male athletes, oftentimes who are very high achieving that are in a peer group of other high achievers, um, of this linear concept, this linear path of, I'm going to go to Wesleyan, I'm going to play in the lacrosse team or the football team or the hockey team. That's, that's very typical, stereotypical. And I think it's true in a lot of ways. And then I'm going to be an investment banker for two years. I'm going to go to business school. I'm going to become, go to private equity. I'm going to work my up to my way up to being an MD, but oftentimes which, which you know, the benefit of hindsight, you and I have been in this game of life for a while now. When you assign incredible value to those milestones, oftentimes when you hit those milestones, they can be kind of dark places. Um, and, and that's something that I think we should all talk about a little bit more because you should be assigning value to relationships, friendships, and, and building those deep relationships. And it's not all about these, you know, seemingly important stages of life that you're going to attain. And it, it kind of reminds me of the comment that the new CEO of City, Jane Frazier, first woman of a, of a large Wall Street investment bank, getting all these kudos and just these incredible remarks about how, you know, incredible it is that she's accomplished all this. And she said, well, I've also sacrificed a lot to get here and I've missed out on a lot to get here. Right. That kind of evokes what you're talking about a little bit in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this idea of, and it's, and it's not just males. I think there is a, um, you know, the um, competitive nature of athletics um, and the sort of easily identifiable metrics for success. You either win or you lose, you're faster than someone else or you're not. Um, and the sort of wealth of information we have about how to improve performance in an athletic capacity, you know, are you going to the gym? Are you uh, doing cardiovascular exercise? Are you, uh, you know, using the latest sort of skills training programs and ideas to improve your performance? Um, all of these systems that we have in place for athletic achievement that kind of thinking, that systems thinking about, okay, well, I, you know, on, if I hit the gym and if I, you know, run 30 miles in a week, and if I, uh, you know, watch videos about the latest ideas in, in how to improve my performance in the lacrosse field, then my performance as an athlete is going to increase. I'm going to feel better about myself. I'm going to gain more recognition. Our team will experience more success. Um, and that kind of instruction, instrumentalization of uh, the things you're doing in your life uh, in order to achieve some goal can very easily bleed out into the other ways you're thinking about how you're living, uh, which is not always a bad thing. Uh, you know, there are uh, the idea that, you know, self-help programs or getting more sleep or, you know, avoiding social media as a tool for increasing productivity. Those are all fine ideas uh, or fine systems of thought if that's something that you feel like is materially improving your life. 
but the notion that it's all for this professional or career success that in the same way your success in the field will be self-evident by the metrics of, of the sport or the game that you played, that your success in life will be self-evident uh, in the job that you get, the compensation you receive, uh, the satisfaction you feel, uh, you know, having a large team. Um, those things don't necessarily follow. Um, and so I'm interested there, like, I know we talked a little bit about this in the pre-call, uh, but you went to law school, practice law. We didn't really talk at all about how you decided to stop practicing. Jeff, I'm supposed to be the one asking the questions. I'm not sure <laughs> if you understand the format of this program. Um, yeah, I'll be honest with you. You know, I was a district attorney for four years. I graduated in 2009, which is about the worst possible time you could have graduated law school in the last, call it, generation. So uh, it was a kind of a rough road to get to a full-time job, and, and I was very much in, in kind of survival scramble mode. But when I did, um, I was a prosecutor, mostly vehicular trial team, which means I was trying anything from an open container, which is a C misdemeanor in Tennessee, to a vehicular homicide. And... Um, I was heads down working. I enjoyed my job, but um, there were moments where I realized that um, it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't think I was where I should have been. And which I know is maybe a throwaway comment, but I just didn't feel like I was, I was living the life that, that, um, that I wanted to. And to turn it back onto, onto the purpose of a lot of these conversations, I started talking to older attorneys I would take a, you know, a 40 year veteran district attorney out for a beer on a Friday and say, Hey, you know, what's it been like being a career prosecutor? I would talk to older attorneys who were in corporate law. Hey, what's it like being a partner at a big law firm? And for the most part, most of these people were pretty miserable. Um, they, they were terrible pessimists. Uh, they worked a lot. They often had fragmented family homes and um, not the great greatest personal lives. And they kind of live for their work, but their work wasn't really <laughs> living for them, if that makes sense. And um, I just wanted something different. And I was very fortunate. I had a, a family situation uh, where I had resources and the cushion to go out and start something and be an entrepreneur. It was precipitated by, um, you know, a very acute situation um, in the near term, but I ended up starting the company and um, I've, been, I've been very happy being an entrepreneur. Um, there have been difficult moments, but, but I think fundamentally the concept for being an attorney of the value creation you're making for the enterprise is relative to how much time you spend on something and not how good of a job you do or the, the quality of the product you're creating. I just thought it was a, was a bad business model and not a way that I wanted to live, frankly. So that was my own journey. And, you know, you can look back and say, man, I regret going to law school, blah, 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 but it's all the path that we're on, right? There's no real destination. We're just in phases of our lives where, you know, for this period of 10 years, I'm an entrepreneur. That may change moving forward. I'm, I'm only 38 um, and it likely will change, but it was a very hard decision. And I know I'd like to hear your thoughts about what you, you know, being a, a stay-at-home dad and embracing that. I think the hardest part for me 
leaving the DA's office and not practicing law, you know, funnily, I, I didn't actually drop my law license for a long time until I formally retired it. It just was hard on the ego, frankly. It felt like in some form or fashion, my father being an attorney, especially felt like some kind of failure in society's eyes or my eyes. And um, I was really hesitant to do it. It was a hard choice. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, it's super interesting that, that um, I know when we had the pre-call, one of the questions you asked me is, you know, whether I was even willing to come do the podcast, given that I, you know, I don't really have a profession per se. Um, yeah, I think something that you alluded to in this idea of talking to former prosecutors and having these conversations underneath that, or all of those conversations, is this question of, you know, is this the good life? Like, am I living a life of meaning? And it can be really helpful to talk to people when you're having those kinds of existential moments. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I really credit about the Wesleyan education, um, just to sort of bring it back to something that I, I feel is really important about the time that I spent there, was one of the great strengths of the liberal arts is to allow you to ask those questions or to even feel as if those questions are important. Um, being able to take a step back and wonder whether you're living the good life, are you a good person? I mean, these are questions without answers, but they've been asked over and over throughout time. So, you know, when I, I still go back to my East Asian studies um, text, texts, uh, both from my um, Chinese philosophy class with Steve Engel and the um, you know, senior paper I wrote on a Chinese poet, I translated some poetry. You know, these are people who are writing 2,500 years ago, uh, 1,500 years ago, and they're asking the same questions that we are, that you're talking about asking yourself. Um, you know, is this what I want? Is this all there is to, to what I'm doing here? Um, and so, you know, when I thought about, and not to bring it back necessarily to the lighthouse, but it was, and it was much more than that. It was thinking more holistically about what I wanted my life to be like. Um, but knowing that for me, you know, the good life is being with family, maximizing my time with people that I really love. Um, and to sort of tie it in with this, with this idea of uh, the athletic mindset, systems thinking, I think that, um, and, and that really funny uh, timeline that you mentioned about, you know, going and working in an investment bank for two years, then you go and work at a private equity firm, you make managing director. And it, it, it's funny because it's true. You hear people say those things all the time. And it's a very pragmatic way of thinking about one's life because if you do those things then financially you will be set for the you know for the most part unless you spend recklessly um, but that's a viewpoint infused entirely with pragmatism um, am I going to have the means to buy food and clothing and you know shelter for myself and my family but it's completely devoid of aesthetics. What does my life look like? 
Am I happy in the day to day? Do I find meaning in the things that I do beyond sort of selfish purposes? And those aren't questions that you can answer necessarily with, you know, an MBA um, or, you know, an internship in an investment bank, unless like you did, you talk with people who've been there a long time. You listen, you put yourself at the feet of people who have a perspective that you have something to learn from. Um, and so, yeah, for me, thinking about whether I wanted to be a stay-at-home dad and whether, you know, my ego would somehow suffer from, from doing that, I don't think was ever really a question because the aesthetic pleasure I get from even the most boring and difficult times with my daughter far outweighs the sense of accomplishment I felt from walking in the doors of the World Bank and being able to tell people that I work there. Um, and funny enough, you know, you mentioned you didn't, um, you didn't uh, retire your law license for a while. I think I had my World Bank badge in, in a box somewhere for five or six years. And eventually I just, you know, I threw it out. Like I don't, I don't need that anymore. Um, which as you, as you alluded to, is a very sort of fortunate position to be able to take. Obviously we, you know, my wife and I have the financial wherewithal to not need two incomes and that's incredibly fortunate, but um, nevertheless, you know, like I could potentially go out and make a lot more money for the family, but that's not the way we want to live. Yeah. And I would just encourage if you're an undergrad listening to this, Jeff and I have known each other a long time. We're having kind of a deep conversation here and not everybody has the ability to make these choices. We've alluded to that, right? I mean, we have, we, we, we have that privilege, but I would really encourage you if you are very focused on one track of, of education at school, embrace that kind of lack of a core curriculum and take some classes outside of your focus and expand your network because I think to Jeff's point, no matter what you do professionally, no matter the status you achieve or the, the money you make, it doesn't solve the human condition. But you know, some of these philosophical and artistic classes and learning experiences that you can have at Wesleyan can really help you through these periods of of doubt or change in your life. And I'm like you, I I was a COL major very unusual for lacrosse player. I missed our sophomore season because I was abroad, but it was important to me. And especially this year, which has been, you know, a difficult year for a lot of people. I've gone back to a lot of the core curriculum colloquium that, that I took many years ago, mostly philosophy and poetry. And I found it very helpful in a lot of ways because you realize that you're not the first person to go through these periods of, of change. You're not the first person to have these questions. And there's no answers, but there's solace, I think, in knowing that you know, you're not alone with what's going on in your head. So I'd really encourage people to, to take some of those classes that they may not apply when you're investment banking or working on Wall Street or a doctor, but they sure can come in handy at times like this. So. Yeah, and to that point, I would encourage undergrads who are listening or, you know, or recent alums who are listening, if you've made it this far, um, to not instrumentalize your Wesleyan education. Um, it's not 
just a certification on your resume uh, that people recognize its ranking in the US News and World Report. Um, Wesleyan is a liberal arts institution with an excellent educational track record. You know, if you've recently graduated, you've had an excellent education. And if you're there, you have the opportunity to be incredibly well-educated. Um, and not just in the sense of workforce preparation, in the sense that, you know, you and I are talking about that you can start down the, or continue on the path of being a lifelong learner, recognizing that these questions might not ever be solved, but you are in the same way that you're developing skills that might be applicable to the workforce down the line or to whatever profession you decide you want to go into, you're developing skills that will allow you to sort of examine these bigger life questions as well. And while you'll likely never find answers, you might open up a few more voices that you can listen to that might be comforting when you're struggling. Um, yeah, that's just that, that, those would be my words of encouragement to, to undergrads who are still there or those who've recently graduated. Well, I think on that note, we've gone about 45 minutes. It's been fun. It's really good to catch up. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I was say, you know, we've obviously, been, I've been talking to a lot of the, our peers and colleagues and teammates. If you are an undergrad or a recent graduate listening to this, you know, Jeff and I hadn't spoken for a long time, too long. Right. And I really regret that. And it's been awesome to have you back in my life. And I would just really reinforce to people that I know we all get busy with family formation and our business and careers. And part of the challenge we have as really high motivated, high achieving individuals is we often get very busy very quickly. But I would really try to reinforce to people listening to maintain the relationships you made at school because it will help you have a more robust and rich and enriched life. And these are people that are formative in your, in your personal and professional lives. So take the time to keep up with people. It's easier now than it, than it was before too. So that's my two cents to add on the back here, but here, here, Jeff, thank you for the time. I really thank appreciate you, Brian. It. I appreciate it as well. Good take talking care. to you as always.